This is the place where the explicit language warning goes, but on this podcast, there is none, but I still have to say it. Otherwise, it could be claimed under the laws of eminent domain. Hi, it's Mike, and it's the Saturday Show. One of those things is less susceptible to the vagaries of your listening schedule than the other. So if you know me, if you listen, you know that two of my big things are let's not over-catastrophize and it'll be very hard to make progress in the future unless we could recognize the progress that we are making and have made. So I have a segment from the vaults and a segment from this week that gets at both of those themes. On Wednesday, I talked about the fantastic news that was abounding. Now, this was a day when the Dow Jones and the S&P set records, the bad kind, for how much they fell. By the end of the week, the markets weren't doing well either. But it doesn't matter because we found out news from the, from the world of the military, the world of international progress, the world of childhood poverty, News that was just amazing, and it was undercovered. So, in a segment kind of unlike what I usually do, I just presented the news, because you might not have heard it. Great news. And in fact, as we'll replay that segment, if you have a chance to go to the Gates Foundation website, check out some of the findings and some of the charts that are up there. You'll be heartened. And I hope you'll also be heartened as I replay this interview that I did from February of 2008 with Steven Pinker. Steven Pinker is the professor who has kind of become synonymous with the idea that we are making progress. He's out with a new book called Rationality. We'll talk to him about that. But this is an interview from over four years ago. We talk about his book then, Enlightenment Now, The Case for Reason, Science, Humanism, and Progress. Enjoy now, one from the vaults with Steven Pinker and one from Wednesday. And let's revel in some of the good news that we're seeing. Steven Pinker's last book, Better Angels of Our Nature, the Harvard psychology professor, spilled much ink on how much blood has been spilt over the years. It's less than we might think. So he dug deeper for his new work. He dug through the troughs of the horsemen adjacent to war, pestilence, famine, plague, and what he found does not hew to popular belief. As a society, perhaps as a species, we have long dwelt on the negative, but the news is mostly positive. It's all there in the new book, Enlightenment Now, The Case for Reason, Science, Humanism, and Progress. Professor Steven Pinker, welcome. Thank you for coming in. Thank you. Do you see what I did in the intro? I tried to include as many irregular verbs as possible. Much appreciated. Because I know that's your specialty. My favorite words in the language. You made your, did you make your name on that? It was my obsession for a big chunk of my career, the yeah. psychology of regular and irregular verbs as a way of getting at the interaction between computation and memory in language and more generally in cognition. So what I want to do is uh, talk about some of the context and implications for your arguments. But what I like to do first is just lay out some facts. There's, I don't know, 75 or so graphs in here, and each could be an amazing fact that might blow your mind if your mind is uh, able to be blown. Why don't you tell me one of these advances of civilization that we might not realize. You tell me one of your favorites, and then I'll tell you one of my favorites from your book. Well, you got to begin with life itself. Yeah. And through 
through most of human history, a newborn could be expected to live only about 30 years. Now, life expectancy in the developed world is greater than 80 years. Life expectancy in the world as a whole is 71. And we know from surveys, no one guesses that it's that high. Right. A few people appreciate that uh, in as recently as the 18th century in Western Europe, about a third of babies died before they, their fifth birthday. Now that has uh, plummeted, certainly in the developed world, but crucially, all of the figures of human well-being uh, that we enjoy in the West are spreading globally. And so sub-Saharan Africa, South Asia, they are replicating the escape from universal poverty and misery and early death that uh, Europe had to go through. I'm going to come back to early death, but I'll just tell you what I think my favorite stat in the book was. The amount of laundry we do a day. (laughs) Right? It used to be 11 and a half hours a week. Now it's one and a half hours. That's right. There used to be this concept of wash day. Yeah. You would forfeit one day a week. Now, and when I say you, that's mainly women. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so it's it's not you and me literally in, in, in practice. But yeah, thanks to the washing machine, an entire day a week has been returned to our lives. We and never credit that. We never credit that. And needless to say, housework is the least favorite way that people say they spend their time. Right. And so it truly is a gift and it isn't just laundry, but also cooking and peeling and churning and, uh, and darning and all, all the ways in which our grandmothers and great-grandmothers yeah. spent their, their time. People don't spend any time on it anymore. Now we have more phrases. We spend more time investing in phrases associated with laundry, like darn and airing your dirty laundry, than we do actually doing laundry. <laughs> right. We'll send it That's through kind of, the rinse cycle, see how it comes out. It's a kind of progress. My other favorite thing is the cost of, of lumens. Just if you wanted to light, have light in the Middle Ages to now, it's so much easier. It's astronomically easier. Well, it used to be that that a tallow candle was a luxury, yeah. and and most people would have to do without. You wouldn't yeah. want to forfeit a bunch You'd of your have rent. To check. Take your monastic vows to have easy access to one. Yeah, right. <laughs> and uh, and and it's continuing to get cheaper, even when that graph uh, by um, uh, Nordhaus was published. That was before uh, cheap uh, LEDs were widely available. The fact is, I mean, this is what your whole book is about. The fact is that as humans, well, since the Enlightenment, things have improved. We've made things improved. We've orchestrated an improvement of things. That's right. And that, of course, is the major theme of the book. Not only that progress has taken place, but that we can credit particular ideas that, that made it take place. It's not just it's not some magical arc of improvement or dialectic or mysterious process that carries us ever upward. Yeah. Uh, it's people in the past identified problems. They tried to solve them. Uh, every once in a while, they succeeded. We kept the, the ones that worked. Uh, learn from our mistakes. And as we accumulate that knowledge, then we chip away at constant scourges of the human condition, like pestilence, like famine, like war. So things have been improving. We credit the Enlightenment. All this time, as things have been improving, we don't credit the improvement. You have so many quotes from the past about how little we look around and say things have gotten better. This is not just a current affliction. Even as things were improving dramatically 100 years ago or 150 years ago, we slough them off. That's right. It's it's rarely cool to point out human progress. It sounds complacent. It sounds Pollyanna-ish. Newspaper editors say that's not real news. That's advertising. And it's got real consequences if we take for granted these improvements. For one thing, it makes us too quick to watch our institutions be hollowed out and denigrated. It opens the door for demagogues to say, uh, it's an outrage that we're not living in a perfect society mm-hmm. and only I can can fix it. it. It leads people to undervalue some of the specific institutions that deserve credit for 
progress we've enjoyed, such as institutions of international cooperation like the United Nations, which for all of its follies and um, bad theater has played a, an enormously positive role right. in, the, uh, in the expansion of peace. Likewise, organizations that foster international trade. Uh, likewise, environmental protection uh, agencies and Clean Air Acts. Legislation that is not given the credit it deserves for actually reducing levels of air and water pollution right. while al- at the same time allowing for economic growth. Right. So the th- most common thing you'll hear about something like the EPA is preceded by a phrase, well, these bureaucrats in Washington. But my God, these bureaucrats in Washington have improved our lives. Yeah. So we can see the sky. It's, yeah. We don't have purple haze uh, smothering Los Angeles most days of the, yeah. of the uh, year. But then, you know, Jimi Hendrix uh, inspiration <laughs> fades into oblivion. Oh, and, and beyond that, there are famous innovations that have become punchlines, like the Kellogg-Briand Pact, which is only used to laugh at the idea of, ha-ha, we once banned war. But it was actually a very good idea, and that pact maybe didn't work in the specific. But in general, war is being seen as less of a a viable option among forward-looking countries. And maybe the Kellogg-Briand Pact was part of that. Yes, it is something of a laughing stock. That's what it was taught to me when I was in high school. This right. was the pact that allegedly outlawed war in 1928. And there was this you know, little blip called World War II in between. Uh, on the other hand, the legal scholars Una Hathaway and, and Scott Shapiro point out that all laws are violated, sometimes flagrantly. Our laws against murder are obviously violated. Yeah. Yeah. That's not a reason to do without laws against murder. We're having the exact parallel discussion with why have laws against guns. Precisely. <laughs> the exact discussion. E- exactly. <laughs> yeah. And uh, what, what Hathaway and Shapiro pointed out is that the uh, outlawry of war really only gained teeth with the formation of the United Nations in 1945. And since then, uh, hard as it may be to believe, it really has changed the course of world history because prior to that, war was perfectly legitimate. If one country had, was, was slow in some debt payments, then the, uh, the, the, the creditor nation could invade it and ch- take a chunk of territory to uh, compensate, and it would be recognized by the world c- community. Yeah. And that doesn't happen anymore. It's not that there are no annexations, as we saw with Russia and Crimea, right. but uh, they counted them up, and they noted that there was a, um, the equivalent of a Crimea-size annexation you know, every year for hundreds of years, or uh, even, even greater. Territory would change hands, countries would be wiped off the map, borders moved back and forth. Then that all froze in, uh, in 1945. There have been very few conquests, no states have gone out of existence, and not in a straight line, but in a kind of downward roller coaster, the number and rate of death in wars have uh, gone down. But Professor Pinker, I want to go back to a couple of your theses. One, since the Enlightenment, things have improved. Two, as we just said, since the Enlightenment, against the backdrop of improvement, is not crediting the improvement. So why now write a book where you think it's important that we give credit to the improvement? Isn't not crediting the improvement one of the fuels for things improving? I would say no. Certainly recognizing problems is essential to solving mm-hmm. them. So we, we, we can't uh, assume that we've reached utopia, and we never will reach utopia, and it would be dangerous to try to reach utopia. There'll always be problems. That's guaranteed by the fact that the laws of the universe don't care about us. Yeah. Things fall apart. Things go wrong. We're, we're human. And we're always going to be human. We're going to um, squabble and uh, get on each other's nerves. But it's important to to recognize the progress that, that has occurred. First of all, to embolden us to strive for more rather than throwing up our hands and saying, well, the human condition is a, a veil of tears. We're 
uh, saddled with tragedy. It's utopian to even try to improve our lot, to reduce the rate of war, to bring down the rate of crime. These are intractable problems. But when you realize they're not intractable, it does embolden you to look for solutions. Also, it means that we don't take for granted some of the institutions that are in place that, however flawed they are, they're better than the the alternative. Uh, I agree with large parts of that. I mean, if if in general the argument is, hey, let's recognize the world as it is, not the world as it is, and I'm for accuracy. But I think about, say, the black experience in America, and I know of very few public intellectuals today who generally say, look, our people, I'm talking about black intellectuals, our people are really improving and things are a lot better, but there's still a little ways to go. I mean, in general, they agitate for change on the basis of not just look at how far we've come since slavery, but more like, oh my God, look at the gap between black Americans and white Americans. I would even think Barack Obama, who was always careful, but maybe because he had to appeal to a white majority electorate, always careful to say, if you want to know how bad things were, talk to, you know, a black man from the South who's 90 years old or we're a aircraft carrier and all we could do is gently nudge the aircraft carrier towards progress. But even he, I think, in his gut and he showed at times, thought that the animating principle was not basically, look, we, we're doing pretty well. The animating principle is, my God, we have so far to go. And that's a motivation, too. Uh, it is, although Obama, he did have a mindset that's overlaps a lot with uh, Enlightenment now, mm-hmm. in that he would point to, and I know this for a fact because I consulted with his speechwriters. Yeah. Uh, they, they asked me for some data and I, I made some suggestions, but that was very much part of his theme, that if you were to quantify human well-being, that's when, when you see progress that would escape you if you uh, looked only at the, the news. And by the way, and Clinton as well, at least when he was out of office, had a great line that I, I thoroughly intend to steal, follow the trend lines, not the headlines. Yeah. So it is a way of thinking that these optimistic politicians can co-opt, and it is data-driven. It isn't just putting on a sunny face or, or looking at the bright side. I was thinking, so, so there's so many things that have gotten better, and literally no person today who has to do laundry is like, wow, things are so much better than when I had to beat this or when my great-grandmother was beating these clothes against a rock. So I was trying to think, of what are the things, what are the areas where there has been progress and we don't just curse the downside of it? And what I was thinking, the things I thought of are culinary. I think Mm. that there's a lot of progress with the kinds of foods we eat. And I do think people say, this is so much better than I was a kid. And isn't this amazing? And even like I do Blue Apron, getting a meal box shipped. There is a crediting of the progress in that area. I yeah, was you, thinking, can go out yeah. to, you can go out for, for Thai food. Uh, yeah. That was not a concept yeah. before the 1980s. Yeah, it's, every, uh. it's, it's like such a common cuisine. I think people love their cars. I, I, I mean, know, we've... They don't, uh, I mean, they, they, they don't stall the way... I mean, in my generation, when you... Right. Part of driver's ed was you learned how to take the lid off the air filter, stick a sunglass case into oh, you the did, carburetor. Yeah, I did a stick. I had yeah, a stick right. in my... Right. And yeah. So I was just trying to think, what are the areas? Are they are they kind of personal things where we do you know, we give should, credit we, to progress? You're really not enough. So I'll just give you another example. Let's say you're a cinemaphile. You know, when I was in college, if you wanted to... You read about this great film, The Seventh Seal. Yeah. When do you get to see it? Well, you know, maybe in, a, in, in three years years, it'll be shown at a local repertory theater on a Thursday night or maybe on late night TV in, in uh, black and white. Now you want to see The Seventh Seal, you download it and you're, you're watching it. Yeah. So on for the, this massive trove of, uh, of human culture. 
That's another example. Yes, but even you know, po- that's a double-edged sword too because, yes, you can watch any movie, but you know what else you have? Every movie at your fingertips. It's the paradox of choice, and we become less happy with too many choices. Yeah, but t- talk about a first-world problem. Steven Pinker is the author of Enlightenment Now, The Case for Reason, Science, Humanism, and Progress. Thank you very much. Thank you. And now the spiel. Really good news has been dominating the world the last few days. And if you said to yourself, oh, really? Wait, what is it? Tells you a lot about the kind of tough time that anything but pessimism or tumult has for breaking through. But I do, of course, mean or mostly mean Ukraine. The advance of the Ukrainian troops pushing back the Russians has been widely chronicled. Territory gains and Ukrainians in a much better position to escape subjugation and death. Now, in some quarters in the U.S., there is a disinclination to revel in or to feel good about war news. This is misplaced. I guess most people just are, quote, against war or don't want to feel like the kind of people who cheer on military victories. But I got to tell you, military victories are a lot better than military defeats if you're going down to a bunch of people who do want to put you under their heel, make you live their lifestyle, and possibly kill you and your family along the way. Successfully winning a war against a tyrant should be celebrated. Losing a war is a lot worse than not losing it. Losing to an illegitimate aggressor bent on war crimes, that's even worse still. But it's not the only news that's really good news. In fact, it's not the only war news that's good news. Today, we got so much news. We were exposed to so much news that was so good. Well, today, in the last couple of days, just a litany of great news, and I bet you didn't even notice it. So broadly speaking, inflation is still high, and the new report came out, and it's not great. It lowered a bit, but not so much, but let's just stick with the war news. Something kind of a little, I'm going to say a little more important to the people involved than 8.1% inflation, which is bad for Americans, but not as bad as what was going on in the Tigray region of Ethiopia. It's one of three wars in the world currently being waged. However, the Tigray People's Liberation Front announced that they're willing to abide by an immediate ceasefire, which was broken months ago, and they will come to the negotiation table with the Ethiopian government. They're committed to participate in the peace process under the auspices of the African Union. The United States encouraged Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed to, quote, seize the opportunity for peace. Yes. War, of course, is not the only horseman of the apocalypse. Fame, pestilence, death. It brings us to the Goalkeepers Report. The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, which I guess you got to pause a little bit more in between those two names, Bill, and also this lady named Melinda or Melinda. Yeah, you might remember Bill. They're not really on the same page. They actually now issue two different takes on the Goalkeepers Report on global progress. But this is their huge foundation just trying to improve the world. I cracked open the Goalkeepers Report and it had these words. We need to speed up the pace of our progress five times faster to meet most of our goals. And that might even be 
an underestimate. As bad as the data makes it seem, the real situation might be even worse. So why am I including this in what I called a litany of really good news? Well, the next phrase, or it might be better. And I have to say, a fair reading of the goalkeeper's report shows just how much better things are getting. They have a dozen or so metrics where they go into the world and they try to improve things. And things are improving. Things are greatly improving in some regions. Let's just go by some of their metrics. Stunted growth. Children who have stunted growth. Malnutrition. It's gone from 33% of the world to 23% of the world. That's significant. It's been cut in half in Southeast Asia. What about neonatal death? Cut in half throughout the world since 1990. Latin America, even better than the world average. In North Africa and the Middle East, neonatal death has been cut by two-thirds. Today, 58% of the world's population uses safely managed sanitation. Now, if that's glass half full, literally clean water glass half full, think about where we started. When they started measuring 1990, 29% of the world's population had safely managed sanitation. It is literally doubled in the time they've been looking at it. I was alerted to many of these advances in the report itself by Derek Thompson in The Atlantic, and I think Thompson is right to point to AIDS as an area of such great improvement. When they were doing predictions about AIDS decades ago, they forecast that 5 million people would die of AIDS in 2020. I remember in the early 80s, the forecasts were even more dire than this. But, you know, almost 20 years ago, George W. Bush announced the PEPFAR program combating HIV in Africa, and it's worked. Not just that, but all these global health organizations and pharmaceutical companies and the organizations that get the expensive drugs to the people who need them. So instead of 5 million people dying of AIDS, half a million people are dying of AIDS. You could look at it and say half a million people are dying of AIDS. You could say that's 90% better than the forecast would have predicted. Tropical diseases, the prevalence of, they have a grab bag of 15 uh, neglected tropical diseases per 100,000 people have been cut significantly. In Southeast Asia, to take one region out of 100,000 people, 71,000 people in 1990 used to have these diseases. Now it's 12, 12,000. It went from something being more than common, being prevalent in south in the entire region of southeast asia to something being rare quite rare indeed so that's internationally some of these statistics are talking about how the united states is improving but the united states specifically the fate of our poorest children is doing so much better than we ever thought i read about this in the new york times and a journalist there jason deparle who's been covering childhood poverty all kinds of poverty and he's just a great chronicler of the anguish circumstances on the ground. He's there when people get evicted from apartments. He's there when kids wait at food pantries. But he, the New York Times, in collaboration with a group called Child Trends, have documented that since 1993, child poverty has dropped by 59%. The reasons why are fascinating. It's mostly that the state that the safety net is stitched fairly well. It works in different ways. Some programs work great. Some programs work less great. But 
child poverty, which is one of the main reasons why you organize a society, child poverty has come down by more than half. All the caveats obtain, yes, just being above the poverty line doesn't mean that life is good, doesn't mean that you're going to make it, but it gives so many more children a chance to make it. And like I said, this is why you have a civilization to provide some security, to provide some justice, to provide for the material well-being of most of your citizens, and to give children a chance to thrive. And America is doing that. America is doing that better than we ever knew. We didn't really address it correctly. We never assessed it correctly. And after this study came out, you would think that this would lead other newscasts, but I have not seen any word of this. The New York Times, the most the most prominent, most important news organization in America, did put it on the front page above the fold. But have you? were you talking about it at the office if you've been forced to come back to work? Which gets me to the depressing part. The depressing part is that all this stuff, which isn't depressing, just doesn't break through, right? Maybe you're saying to yourself, okay, that's all good in the abstract. It's great statistics, but I don't feel it. It doesn't give me a raise. doesn't make healthcare more affordable for me and my family. But think about all the things in the news that maybe depress you, that maybe are off-putting or bummers. Most of them don't really affect you, you know, horrible spate of killings in neighborhoods you probably don't live in. Most of the economic news didn't dock your pay, did it? Made you worried, but it didn't dock your pay. Climate change is real and is a huge issue. Uh, When the government passed a bill, which Joe Manchin sought to frame as inflation reduction, but really is the most significant climate change action in years and years and years. I don't know, maybe for one day you said to yourself, it's better it passed than it didn't, but it's not improving your life. And yet every time you read a story about a fire or a flood, that does get you down a little bit. We haven't had any hurricanes this year. Where's the story on lack of hurricanes? I actually read a story on even with a lack of hurricanes, people are still very nervous in the region that usually experiences hurricanes. So what I'm saying is good things that are remote almost never bring you a smile. They also almost never flit across your consciousness. It's just not the way our media is organized. It's probably not the way that we as humans orient ourselves in order not to get eaten by lions in the savannah. I get it. But good news abounds. This is an acute example of the good news all happening at once. And all I can do is say, well, good. That's a great thing. Let's acknowledge it. The other good news is that The Gist is produced by Corey Wara as the assistant producer and Joel Patterson as our senior producer. I shall talk to you on Monday.